0: Hello and welcome to The Sit Down, it's Season 1, Episode 2, and this time Chad and I are going to discuss one of the all-time great mobster films, Scarface from 1932. We'll talk about amazing performances of the different actors and various character motifs used throughout. We'll also discuss the rapidly evolving craft of filmmaking during the 1930s, especially as it relates to camera work and sound. And as far as the plot of this movie goes, it may be an old black-and-white film from Prohibition-era America, but many of the themes are still relevant today. So pull up a chair and have a seat. It's time for the sit-down. Okay, Chad,
1: first question.
0: Was this a gangster film? Uh,
1: yes, I would have to say it is a gangster film.
0: I would so, say it checks was pretty terrible. much all the boxes.
1: Yeah, I would say it checks off. And yes, and y- you, can X, you can X that one off. It is a gangster <laughs> film.
0: So we have 1932 Scarface. It was uh, one of the most influential gangster films of all time, so influential that mm. Brian De Palma remade it in 83. And I did not expect to like it that much. I was watching this particularly just for like historical background and to get a better idea of how the genre evolved over time. I really like the the 83 Scarface, but I I might like this better and I'm not saying that to be a schmuck. I really I really do think it's a great film. So, 1932 Scarface is about the gangster Tony Kamati in Prohibition, Chicago, uh, during the early 30s. It uh, it really, Tony's character doesn't have much of an arc. He's uh, bloodthirsty and out for himself and wants power right from the start. He starts off by killing the guy he's working for, Big Louie. Uh, starts working for his... Uh,
1: Johnny... Johnny Lobo.
0: Lobo. Yeah. Yeah, and uh you know, knocks off the other rivals, eventually turns on Johnny, takes every takes yeah takes, t- yep. takes Johnny. Which he girlfriend. had indicated
1: to his buddy early on.
0: Yeah, early on, he's like, Hey, you know, Johnny's just some guy who was what's the big deal? We'll take him. There isn't an arc, but there is a huge crash at the end because everything turns against Tony. Everyone around him good point. Is, is dead or
1: so there's real, real bend. There is a serious bend on the character.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a yeah.
1: yeah it does. There is like a. That's the. It's not a character arc, but it's a character bend.
0: Yes, quite a sharp bend. So, this film touches on a number of issues that it's interesting how relevant they are in 2016. Um, yeah. There's a couple yeah. of of scenes about. You know, violence in society and gun control
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: um, immigrants causing problems for, you know, upstanding Americans. I was kind of shocked at how some of the themes and some of the things that people were arguing over and and pointing out about what was wrong with their society then is a lot of people are saying very similar things now. Not that I agree with them necessarily, but it's a it's an interesting parallel Tony's first interaction with the cops is in the barbershop. shop, and uh, I, yeah, that's the first time we meet Ronaldo, who's uh, flipping the coin,
1: which is an interesting character motif. And I, that's one of the things I loved about this film is they got they had a number of cool little character motifs, which we can talk more about later. But I th- just want to mention that.
0: So they hear the cops pull up, and the uh, um, Ronaldo. And Tony just throw their guns casually in a a towel bin and uh, the barber just covers it up like it's no big deal. Like he's just casually in on the whole, you know, these are my gangster customers. I'm going to make sure the cops don't get them for having guns. Uh, And they get pulled downtown and they're pretty much threatened with police (laughs) brutality right from the start. Like it's not. Yeah. It's like, hey, we're going to, you know, we're not even sure why we have you here, but we're going to beat you up. They, they they think that Tony. Yeah, probably you're lucky had, if
1: we don't basically. Yeah,
0: they think Tony yeah. had something to do with Big Louie, and uh, I, I noticed in a lot of the huh. interactions that Tony has with uh, with the police, he like changes his voice, like he's he does more of that. Uh, you know, well, come on, what am I? What are you, what are you talking to me for? Kind yeah. of thing. It's almost like he wants to sound more. Thuggish to them so that it will tweak them even more because he doesn't sound like that as much when he's talking with his friends. But he's Mm -hmm. like, it's almost like, you know, he knows it would infuriate them to be outsmarted by what they consider to be, you know, a street thug. And he just kind of plays that up even more uh, just to kind of tweak the cops. But he gets saved by what Tony refers to as a writ of hocus pocus, which he later figures (laughs) out as habeas corpus.
1: Habeas corpus. Yeah, I made a note about that. There's um <laughs> great defense lawyer doing what not I have nothing against defense lawyers, believe me, but like in this case doing what exactly what they want would want a defense lawyer to do. Sure. Find any loophole they can.
0: Yeah, it's like the same it's the same lawyer and uh and the wire who's always, you know, saving Avon Barksdale's crew. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But once Vig Louie has died, uh, the newspaper. There's a scene early on in the mm-hmm. newspaper uh, editor room, and they're talking about how they're going to show the headlines. And the, they're, you know, the, I assume it's the editor is saying, "We want to make it big. We want to say war. There's going to be carnage and war in the streets." So it's almost yeah. like the the press has an interesting portrayal in this film because it seems almost like that newsroom wants there to be bloodshed so that they can write about it and sell papers. They don't, really, they don't really come off as, oh no, this terrible thing is going to happen to our city. It's like, hey, we're going to get to sell papers.
1: Correlation to present day item number one. Not that that's things have ever really been a whole lot different. I didn't take it that way though. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm a little more sympathetic to, uh, the roles and responsibilities of the press. Sure. Uh, So maybe I feel like I'm trying to see it from a journalist's point of view. Uh, I do feel like I felt like this character, the editor of this paper Felt a responsibility to keep his community informed, uh, but it, nonetheless, it does bring up the question because we and we can talk about this later. But they talk about it later in the film. Mm-hmm. Where does you, where do you draw that line between responsible journalism and sensationalism? Where sure. where do you cross over from being a good journalist and becoming a yellow journalist? You right, know what I mean,
0: right, and that's that topic is so. Relevant today, even. Shortly after that, Tony goes home. He talks to his mother, um, who is played by an actress named Inez Pelangi. Mm -hmm. She was born in 1889, which kind of trips me out. But Paul, who's playing her son, was born in 1895. Mm -hmm. So his mom is only six years older than than him um, in actor years, which I think you see that all the time now where the actresses play, like you have to be so young. Like you you yeah. couldn't, you can't have like an actual person who would be the age of his mom. It's, if it's an actress, she has to still be young even though she's playing the guy's mom.
1: She has to have sex appeal even though she's playing a 70-year-old woman or right, whatever. Right, like, right. She has to be, a yeah, to the masses, so to speak. I, I You know, the thing is, is I never really... Now, there's another, I don't know, maybe it was they did a good job of makeup. I never, I didn't research that, and I never, it never crossed my mind. Yeah. That she was, she looked a little young or anything, so I feel like she played the part well. She played the part great.
0: She was a great actress. The only reason I looked is because... I I thought to myself, oh, I bet a lot of these actors were born before the turn of the century. Isn't that interesting? And then I just wanted to look up ages, and I was like, oh, that's when I noticed it, that they actually weren't that far apart in age.
1: Well, maybe he was playing young. So they were both born in eighteen ninety something. This film came out in thirty two. So they were close to forty, right? They were right. both around something like that, yeah. So she had a little, you know, a little more makeup. He had a little less. Well, yeah. he had a little more, and she had a little less. Makeup. Yeah, he had
0: makeup that um, accentuated his eyebrows and his his brow.
1: Actually, that was one of his trademarks. He wasn't like Alon Cheney, but he did quite. Uh, I do believe I read that he he played around with makeup quite a bit. He used it quite a bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and they wanted to make mm. him look um ape-like to Yeah, over the course Cag- of his
1: career. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they wanted him to look like he's almost animal or, or to at least give that impression. So the the big 3 gangster films at this time are Public Enemy with James Cagney. We have we have Paul Muni with uh Scarface mm-hmm. and then you have Edward G. Robinson and Little Caesar. Like those are the 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 big three that kind of kicked off the genre.
1: Yeah, and they all came all three out that year, correct?
0: Uh, They all came out within a span of like two years.
1: Within, Okay.
0: Two or three years. Um, Close. And Uh, Cagney and Robinson both played gangsters in other films and in various roles in the crime genre mm -hmm. for a lot of their careers to the point of parodying their own roles later on. But Paul Muni does not play a gangster again after this Um, his career goes on and he does things but this was it's kind of like you touched on this when we talked about kubrick with uh with the film noir thing where he was like i can nail this genre i can totally do it and then i'm going to go on and do something else and i feel like that's kind (laughs) of what paul did he's like i'm going to be a classic gangster that no one's going to forget i mean we're talking about this film nearly 100 years later And shortly after we meet his mom, we meet uh, his sister and he catches her kissing another guy and he takes one look at Tony and and hightails it. And, you know, he's given her all sorts of grief about it. And that's the first time, like right Mm -hmm. away, one of the first things she says is sometimes the way you, you act towards me makes me think. And like the and, you know the thing she doesn't say is that like that you're in love with me like that you're in love with your own sister, mm-hmm. and that's yeah you know, it it was interesting that they got right up against that in the very first scene between them. The mom starts to point out right from the beginning, you know, you two are just alike. You know, you're just she's starting to talk just like you, Tony, and mm-hmm. you know later on she you know laments to Jessica, you know, you act just like Tony, and right. I I miss that. I, I that just kind of went over my head when I first saw it, and
1: I don't know if, like, first time if I had seen this film before I saw the 1983 version, that I would have picked up on those things, yeah. The first time I watched this film, and I but they what I was surprised is that they came up as quickly as they did, and it was sure. actually yeah, I mean, there's nothing you know, particularly graphic about it or anything like that. I don't, uh, but it was there. It was, you know, and I I could see how this was maybe what this wasn't necessarily pre-Hays Code, but it was before it was really being enforced.
0: Right. It was movies like this that caused the Hays Code to start to get its teeth back because people were freaking out over this movie, all the violence. Yeah. In this movie, yeah, I think it one. I mean, they they reenact the St. Valentine's Day Massacre at one time. Yeah, there's like yeah. one, two, three, four, five, six drive-by shootings that happen one right after the other. Mm-hmm. Um, then that's not all the drive-by shootings.
1: And it's unfortunate because I, well, in this case, life or art is imitating life, and then you wonder like well when does lights start imitating art and is it you know this sort of vicious circle that sure. continues because of films being like this being made
0: well there was uh, um
1: <laughs> but at the same time it brings up a legitimate concern the the,
0: the in, suicide as, rate as and that, yeah. the homicide rate in 1931 was really high like i'm not talking i'm talking about really? the rate like it was it was big um, and wow. things like tommy guns which are really used to a great extent the
1: depression them. not helping matters much I'm sure,
0: sure. right so tommy guns are, are used throughout in the second half of the movie um, and mm-hmm. several you know the, the gangsters are happy that they're so easily available and the police are lamenting that they're so easily available and the police don't don't really have much in the way of firepower like the gangsters do So Johnny Lovo, the character that Tony works for right after, you know, he kills Big Louie in the first few minutes and then he works for Johnny Lovo and he meets uh, his girlfriend Poppy and takes an immediate liking to her. She was an interesting character. I feel like she was interesting because she never really seemed afraid or put off by living in the in the, the the organized crime life. I mean, there, there's no, a scene she didn't. where her, the whole restaurant that they're in is getting shot to pieces by carload after carload of Tommy gun gangster and She doesn't even <laughs> really seem afraid. She for on
1: it. It was like, yeah, no big deal, it's another day. And yeah. she didn't really see particularly disturbed. Even she was. What was interesting is she seemed like she was able to to do a pretty quick analysis of Tony's character of his, of his makeup. Yeah. And she didn't seem, even though she could see him for what he was, uh, she didn't seem to be all that disturbed or surprised. And she starts you know, to make didn't...
0: her move to align herself with Tony way before, you know, things end with, with Johnny. Um, yeah. She's already, she goes to his apartment all on her own, that she goes to dinner with him after that. Then there's the shoot up. Yeah. There's the very crucial scene where um, they're at the party later in the film and Tony sits at Johnny and Poppy's table and she leans over to have her cigarette lit and they both offer lights and she kind of looks them both in the eye and lets lets Johnny light her cigarette, if you know what I mean. And um, that kind of, that cinched it for Johnny and, and Tony at that point. You knew bad things were coming.
1: wanted to get into character motif a little bit okay go ahead and uh, the for instance let's take tony he has an interesting character motif
0: You speaking of the scar
1: that's one of them mm-hmm. that's actually one of them actually so i'm glad you brought that up because i wasn't even going to mention that i was going to mention the whistle yeah uh that he does and it usually it happens And I was reading about that. The scar is only not only it's only not only a character motif, really, but it's also for the film as a whole.
0: The scar on his face is a letter X, and we see the X throughout the film, and sometimes contrived shadows, but it's it's there.
1: Yeah, and you you see it a lot of times. Evidently, you know, when someone's about to get knocked off, a death is about to happen. Yep, and um. The other thing that happens is you usually hear him whistling, and it's evidently a tune from uh, opera, the opera Lucia de Lammermoor, mm-hmm. which I don't know all that well. I don't, uh, but um, I know I've heard of it.
0: I knew it was an opera. I didn't know what which one.
1: Yeah, I didn't know. I see. I had no idea. I just oh, he whistles it, and every time he, when you hear it, usually something he, he's about to do something bad. Yep. Something's gonna happen. Um, Which I thought was interesting The other two was uh, There was George Raft The coin flipping George Raft He had this thing That was a part of his Interesting part of his character He flipped mm-hmm. this coin And I it always It's almost like a cliche thing You associate gangsters with You know some One of them's flipping a coin Right I just always think that And I'm wondering I do want to research that further Because I'm wondering if George Raft Was the guy who really Kind of started that whole thing Well he, he couldn't
0: uh, act or he didn't think he could act. It I was re-
1: yeah. I Go it ahead. It was
0: one of his first roles, so it was like, well, just flip a coin. Just we'll have you flipping a coin, and you just concentrate on. You'll be the tough guy flipping a coin. Mm. You you concentrate on that when you're not doing your lines. Um, right. He was a great actor though, and went and went on to a pretty great career.
1: I'm sure he wasn't the first person to ever flip a coin. You know, um, and, and I did like wonder like. Where did that come from? Like, if you're flipping a coin, does that mean something? Is, you know, there'll be a guy. He's gonna be on a corner. He's gonna be flipping a coin. You know, is it like? Yeah. <laughs> is it like, you know, signing in baseball? This means that. This means when you're flipping a coin. I wondered.
0: Okay, I'm, this is gonna be a kind of a strange aside, but the the goofy robot movie Short Circuit. At one point towards the end, when you know Johnny Five comes alive, yeah. he starts flipping a washer like a coin, and he says, mm-hmm. "Your friends don't trust you anymore, Johnny." Like he's mimicking the things that he's seen on TV, and right. I knew as a kid, oh, he's he's mimicking a gangster by flipping that yeah. coin, and he's mimicking the way they talked. Like he's he's mimicking Ronaldo's actions, and he's mimicking Tony's speech to Johnny right before they kill him. And I had not seen this movie. I, of course, hadn't seen very many gangster movies when Short Circuit came out. But I knew mm-hmm. instinctively that's what he's supposed to be. And it was funny. I was laughing along with everybody else who probably did get the joke.
1: There was another great sort of character motif. The other one I was going to mention was, oh, gosh, what was his his helper's? His, uh, Oh, uh, his Angelo.
0: Of... His name, Vince Barnett.
1: Yeah, and... He, there are characters in the 83 version of this film but obviously that obviously that these two guys correlate to more or less. Um, but uh, the other mo- character motif I wanted to mention was the thing how he's always on the phone trying mm-hmm. to get the name. And, of course, if you watch the film, uh, you'll see how all this plays out. But I just thought it was... Sure.
0: It's, and it's funny that... Well, Tony is totally bloodthirsty, but yet yeah. whenever... Whenever Angelo gets upset with people on the phone, he's like, "No, no, you gotta be polite. You gotta be business." Yeah. You know, it's like,
1: <laughs> use some decorum just, here. Of, you know, just, yeah. where's your, where's your, where are your social skills? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. It's like we may be. He's probably, gangsters. he's probably one of
1: maybe. the nicest people in this film. Actually, you know, yeah. is, is and he, he even he had a bit of a, a temper, but yeah, he's probably one of the more pleasant personalities in the movie. To be honest, sure. I thought. He, I mean, it gave the film a little comic relief, um, mm-hmm. and I think they even sort of protected him. I think the other characters in the film sort of protected this guy a little bit, trying. I think they tried to keep him. So they more, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you don't try and plan things. You
0: just you just answer the phone, okay?
1: Yeah, exactly. Because Ronaldo value, gets but, brought into
0: yeah. the to is you know gone over with with the cops, and Tony gets brought in with the cops, but I don't think Angelo ever gets taken in so
1: no no not to my knowledge of course they all never mind they all unfortunately so motifs yeah motifs and there are probably more you know um but the x is a big one and i i'm glad you brought up the x because you know i did a little reading you know usually when something's gonna happen in this film you Mm -hmm. see an x somewhere And I was thinking, and we talked a little bit about this before, you know, there's some other films that I've seen that do that as well. Maybe I'm not too far off in saying Coppola probably got a great idea for Oranges in The Godfather. Mm. Um, Because he used, and and actually, if you listen to the director's commentary on uh, one of the releases Mm. of that DVD, yeah, he talks about his use of Oranges in The Godfather. And that's actually Pretty cool. He does a great job of, but it but it works the same way as the X in this film quite a bit.
0: Yeah, there's a there, there's a scene. It's, it's when you bring that up with uh, Coppola. I. In I mean,
1: I know we weren't going to talk about the Godfather.
0: Well, I just <laughs> I want to mention how the Godfather was influenced, as opposed to how the Godfather influenced everything else.
1: Yeah, I think this is okay. So
0: I think we're okay. So the Saint Valentine's Day Massacre reenactment. Um, they actually say it's Valentine's Day. And, you know, I've got a present mm-hmm. for you. And so you see the shadows of all the guys standing. You see their shadows on the wall, and then they, you know, the, the Tommy gun goes off, and you see right. the bullet holes go through all the shadows, and they fall over. And that, when I saw that, that reminded me of the scene on the assassination attempt on Michael Corleone in Godfather Part Two, where he says... You know, why are the windows open? And then the gun goes off, he jumps on the ground. Um, and you can't see him directly, but you can see uh Michael in the mirror as he pulls his wife off the bed to try and protect her, and the bullet holes go across the wall and across the mirror, you know, mimicking how how close a call it was. Um I have no idea if that was influenced by this Saint Valentine's Day massacre scene, but it's very similar.
1: Yeah, it was and I we ought to talk about that scene a little bit more, I think. But I, the scene that actually, I thought of the Godfather was when they were all lying on the ground in, in they had the, the in the restaurant and the restaurant was shot to pieces. Mm-hmm. And this is when like and you talked about this George Raft runs out there with one pistol, yeah. one shot, shoots a guy, he falls off the <laughs> the running board of the car, and goes in, gets his Tommy gun, and gives it to yeah. You, Tony. I mean, I- hey but it reminded when they were all like laying on the ground trying to you know dodge the bullets and and like mm-hmm. duck and and crawl around on all fours uh avoiding all this it reminded me a lot of that of that scene in the Godfather part right. 2 but uh, that you mentioned
0: tony's character you really see him kind of take kind of a psychopath turn because he's like he's not scared i mean there are carloads of Tommy gun wielding gangsters, driving by the restaurant, unloading into it, and he's not upset at all. Yeah, he's unfast. He's like, hey, they got machine guns you can carry now. He thinks it's awesome.
1: George Raff, Ronaldo, he brings in the Tommy gun, right? Mm-hmm. He gives it to to Tony. He says, hey, they got machine guns you can carry now. They've mm-hmm. just been, as you were saying, you know, the whole place has been shot to pieces. Yep. And he's just happy he's got a Tommy gun. right. He's not really phased by the fact that, you know, a few hundred rounds just went through the whole place, you know. (laughs) He's just happy he's got this one Tommy gun, even though they have probably 30, 40.
0: Yeah, and Poppy's not upset at all. Like, she's...
1: I don't know. Like, I I, I do wonder. I think maybe that was just a little bit of a shallow portrayal in order to sell to American audiences... Uh, hey, these are really thuggy people Mm -hmm. and they don't have feelings, you know, and and not not that they're not hardened characters, not at all, but maybe it was just a little bit of a shallow portrayal for me, that particular scene, that moment.
0: Tony's um, ascent, I guess, increases at that point because he really becomes emboldened even more so than he already was, but Mm -hmm. I just want to go back to the, All these cars are coming by. All these bullets yeah. are coming in. No one gets hit. And, you know, Ronaldo stands up, shoots a single shot from a revolver. He, he shoots a single shot from a revolver at a moving car, hits the guy, <laughs> and runs out, gets the gun, brings it in. It's like, I remember thinking, this just makes, you know, Star Wars stormtroopers look like, you know, expert snipers. I mean, none of those guys can hit anything. Right. Um, But the point wasn't to show a realistic drive-by. The point was to have cars go by and guns go off and to entertain the audience. That was the point of the scene. And to get a gun in in Tony's hand and he can reveal just how not scared and crazy he is.
1: Maybe, you know, I... The only like... I would have bought it if they were even just a little bit mad, like, yeah, you know, the Irish just came down here and shot this place to pieces and tried to shoot us up with it, but we're like, eh, no big deal, you know, we'll go back, we'll hit them. They're not even angry, like which maybe like. Yeah, and after just, all the shooting,
0: Angelo comes from the phone booth <laughs> and says, "Sorry, I didn't get his name."
1: Yeah, it's like a gag, you know. I, 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 like in one sense, it 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 works. It's entertaining. It's funny. It just I don't. At some point, yeah, I had a little problem with the whole my suspension of disbelief.
0: They leave that. They leave the restaurant and they go to Johnny Lobo's, um, Mm -hmm. and he's been shot. Like they've gone there too. They see the bullet holes everywhere on their way up, and you know that's that's when. Tony's like, "Hey, we're we gonna take it to him." You know, the only thing—it's a line that's very similar to what um, Al Pacino's Tony Montana says later. He's like, "The only thing that gives orders is this." You know, and he points to the gun. Um, mm-hmm. Al Pacino says it a little differently in Brian De Palma's movie. We'll get to that, but um, it's—he's—it's—it's it's, it's an interesting portrayal of. Johnny Lovo is supposed to be the boss, and he's, like, scared, and he's been shot. Like, the the fact that he's been shot and he's bleeding shows his weakness, whereas Tony was just in what was probably a worse thing, and he's unscathed and is ready to go out and, and battle some more.
1: I don't know that I ever saw Tony's character get mad.
0: Only when he sees someone dancing with his sister. That's when he gets mad.
1: The rest of the time, it's kind of a game to him.
0: Yeah, it's a big joke. It's it's a big joke. We haven't really touched on Cheska's character at all, and
1: I guess we haven't.
0: I would like to talk about that. She okay. It's it's interesting that she's obviously very free spirited, has a mind of her own, knows what she wants, but she can't. First off, she's still living at home,
1: and and Vorjak. Uh, b- portrays this character beautifully by the way yeah she's fantastic to be mentioned yeah one of the best things about this film
0: oh my gosh the we'll get to that when we're talking about the ending scene she has some lines at the end that i was like it was good good film that's all i'm gonna say Mm -hmm. right now but she it's an interesting portrayal that like Because Tony's a guy, he can kind of let his id go wild. He can shoot up everything. He can go after whatever woman he wants. He can buy whatever he wants. He can live wherever he wants. And Cheska has the same drive and the same desire. But because she's a woman, she has to live at home with her mom. You know, her brother's always coming along and telling her who she can and can't kiss. You know, she Mm -hmm. has to do the, the, you know, for the time, the unwomanly thing of kind of you know, to get the man she wants, she has to really put herself out there. It's a character that I admit I overlooked in the first time I saw it because I was really interested in Tony and it's you know, the way Paul Muni plays that, it. It's, that, it's really hard not to watch him.
1: That's almost, and uh, I, I do want to say something about that character. I mean, I guess you could go on and like, well, the femme fatale. I mean, you kind of have a couple here in a way, but that sort of... She's a like,
0: tragic character. His sister is a tragic character. Yeah, she really is character.
1: a tragic figure. You could go, well, that's been, that story's been told since the dawn of time, you know. Since the Greeks started writing plays, there's been a character like this.
0: Watching the movie multiple times helped me see, you know, how she kind of has that switch at the end, you know. Um, she finally gets Ronaldo to fall for her. Tony leaves for Florida for some reason. They don't really tell you why. Yeah, um, and he comes back. He finds them together. He kills Ronaldo. Um, yeah, because he doesn't know that they're married. We'll get to that—the significance of that here in a second. But mm-hmm. she comes to his apartment and is about to kill him, and then you know Tony is surrounded by the cops,
1: and she's the one who ter- like, you know told the cops about him. Yeah, there he was.
0: Yeah. And then she's like, changes her mind and like, you know, I've got to save you. We've got to, we've got to get out of here. And she, her, she switches from wanting to kill him or have him arrested to wanting to defend him. And I feel like at that moment she gets to be like Tony fully. She doesn't have to be, you know, this, you know, play this mousy woman role anymore. She's like, I'm going to be in a shootout with my brother I'm gonna give into all the you know all the things I have to hold back. I can now let go, and I'm gonna load up the guns, and we're gonna have this battle. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna live the way I've always wanted to live, even if it's only for a few minutes. And a hail of gunfire. Which uh,
1: I mean, I don't I don't know the Roaring Twenties that well. I don't know the Thirties that well. There may be some commentary going on about uh, the sort of one element of the feminist movie that was going on in the, in that Mm -hmm. over that 20 year period or so, um, you know, women, a lot of them, it became a thing to be for some of them a little more forward in terms of their relationships with, with uh, you know, men in their lives in one respect or another.
0: And you can play on that a bit more in a, in a gangster type setting where it's like, this isn't polite society. So yeah
1: this is not the genteel thing you know that was you know where the Victorian age or anything like that. This was a different right generation her and George Raft's character are maybe the most intriguing people in this film for me, and it's funny that we you know i i don't remember if it was it was george raft didn't have this, that so much confidence or the director or some or a producer wasn't so confident in his performance, but his was one of the most powerful in the film as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, Just, I guess he did a great job being the strong silent type, but I was a little more, I found him to be particularly intimidating in his portrayal of that role. When
0: they need to kill, when they think they've killed all the gangsters and, uh, and they find out they missed one and they have to go to the hospital. I mean, that scene was pretty chilling where you've just got, Tony and Ronaldo come in. Angelo comes in too, but he kind of hangs back. And it's Tony and Ronaldo who just have this, you know, look of, you know, death in their eyes where they're just throwing open hospital room doors to find out where the guy is and then blam, blam, blam. I mean, Tony shoots him, but, you know, Ronaldo's right there. I mean, if Ronaldo had opened the right door, he would have done it. And then when the final, you know, when Johnny has that great scene where he's begging for his life, he does a great job playing the. The tough guy who's been out toughed by Tony, and he's pleading for his life. You know, Tony just turns his back on him and just kind of gives Ronaldo the nod, and Ronaldo's the one that kills Johnny.
1: This second leading man, if you will, is a lot different from the uh, the one that we saw in De Palma's version of this film. Sure, um, t- as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, anyways, this was sort of a nice springboard for George Raft's career. Yep. There's a lot of great actors in this anyway.
0: So one name we haven't talked about yet is someone who's was already known at the time and that's Boris Karloff. Yeah. Um he doesn't play a huge role, but Boris Karloff plays Raphney, who's one of the the gangs from the other side of town. And yeah. he's the one who he's the first one to crack open a crate of Tommy guns and say, "Hey, this is You know, he talks about there is no law against bringing guns across state lines. You know, it's like it's free. It's easy. Um, Which
1: brings us up to another point that correlates to a lot of things that are going on today.
0: The easy, easy access of, I mean, a Tommy gun is not a gun made for civilians. It's not intended for civilian use. So you've got military grade hardware in the hands of criminals. Or the not so mentally stable, and it, you know, has seems to have a bad effect on society in the nineteen thirties. Um, seems to have a bad effect now.
1: And there seemed to be some genuine concern on a a large scale. Yeah, about it. <clears throat> yeah,
0: ahead. high capacity military grade weapons in the hands of civilians in the nineteen thirties was a problem, and it's not just in movies. Like I said earlier, the crime rates were through the roof. Uh, you can't yeah. put all that on the at the feet of automatic weapons. You know, there's a lot of other No, bad things certainly at the not.
1: Time. And I don't think I think it's silly. I guess it was an issue. The point is it was an issue and we're still going through it. And yep. what you know, I mean it's what, eighty years later?
0: Yep.
1: Oh, wait eighty five years later or nearly, and we we're still we're still dealing with it. or maybe we weren't so much for a while and suddenly it's a huge issue again
0: wanted to go back to boris karloff for a second yeah i feel like his character i feel like it was thrown in so that they could have another name on the marquee or in the billing for the movie he was good i'm not saying he wasn't good
1: where, where was he at in his career? I'm I'm looking it up right now. I'm looking at... Him. Okay, so wait. He's already done the Frankenstein movies.
0: Yeah, he's... Like, when I saw him, I was like, that's Frankenstein. Of course, you know.
1: He had just done Frankis, Frankenstein, actually. Yeah. He had just done Frankenstein. God,
0: what a long career. He did... He was in a movie in 1971. Gosh, that guy just made movie after movie. He'd had quite a career, um,
1: but you felt like it, he was there to give the film a little extra clout
0: i i have nothing to base that on i'm sure i could read up on that and find out that i'm that it's nonsense well to, you know, that was just my like gut feeling
1: yeah people put stars in movies so they sell i mean there's sure
0: stars. sure but his um he he's not around for long um no. tony finds out uh where he's gonna be and uh, we know that that Boris's character, you know, Gaffney is going to die because the scene before he dies, there's a big X on the wall behind him. So you know that yeah. won't be long. But the scene I wanted to talk real quick about the, his his death scene. Gaffney is at a bowling alley and he goes to, you know, Tony's crew comes in. Gaffney yeah. goes in to to throw the ball and he's shot and the in you know during the action of th- throwing the bowling ball down the lane. And right. The camera stays on the ball, and you see that it's a strike, um, which would be mm-hmm. scored as an X on the scorecard. Um, right. So, which
1: I believe we do see, we do see yeah. the X.
0: Which I thought was kind of funny that, or I didn't not funny, but just I thought, how in the world, how many takes did they have to do to get him falling over and throwing the the ball down and yeah. getting the the strike? And then I I he played was really it in good slow motion at bowling. And yeah. it's not one take. It's a whip pan, which I think you mm-hmm. you, you told me what the, the title was for that, where you move the camera quickly and then you cut and dissolve in the middle of it. Like I watched on iTunes on Apple TV, and you can hit you know you can do slow mo through the through mm-hmm. the sections of the movie, and as you do that, you see that as the camera starts to pan, there is no ball, and then
1: ah okay, okay. and then as so, you keep watching
0: you know. it. It slowly, this ball appears, and then it continues tracking, and it, it knocks it down. It's almost a sleight
1: of hand. Yeah, it, it sense, was. Yeah.
0: It was an interesting death scene. It was kind of. It's a bit melodramatic and over the top. Like his last, his last thing he did was throw a strike. You know.
1: <laughs>
0: but he's bracketed cool. by an X shadow, and then a strike X. You know. <laughs> it's obvious that Gaffney is is gone at that point
1: yeah, I think kind of they kind of sold it.
0: A film that came out pr- you know prior to Scarface was uh, James Cagney and Public Enemy. right. And I have watched those two films close together. and even though it's just one year later, to me, Scarface is a much it's technically I feel like a much better film um, even though there's not that much time between the two they were filmed on the same right. location probably on the same set in, uh in Burbank Scarface has a dedicated sound engineer William Snyder
1: yeah um,
0: Public Enemy doesn't even have a crew position listed for it um, at least not on IMDB um, yeah. Scarface had three different people dedicated to continuity, where Public Enemy does not have anyone set to do that. And Scarface uses a sound on film technique that, while I'm not 100% sure that, that, pub, that the Public Enemy didn't have a, a more primitive version of that, I think probably Public Enemy was filmed and, and the sound was recorded using sound on wax disc which was a 33 RPM disc that you played in conjunction with the film. It was a That's very crazy. And was then a, they, cool.
1: they synced synced it later.
0: Right. There was all these gears wow. and ways you had it, it took a really big um, knowledgeable crew to play sure. the sound so that it synced up with what you were seeing on the screen. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you had a film break and you needed to you know, cut the film, splice it back together, you can't just leave out a you know a foot gap because that's gonna over time that's gonna screw up the sound. So you have to put in these right. gaps where it's just like I guess it was just like white or black on the screen, so that the sound would stay synced in. Um, Warner Brothers really pioneered that. That is what the Jazz Singer was was done using. And Jazz Singer only has like 22, 27 minutes of sound. The rest yeah, of it, is, it wasn't more
1: all. Of a, uh, it was like. Part of it was was sound, and the other part wasn't. A large larger right. portions weren't, I believe. But mm-hmm. uh, it
0: was pretty obvious to the Warner Brothers that they wanted to get on the sound thing really big. And they're the ones who pioneered the sound on disc thing, which I believe the company was Vitaphone. It turned out not to be a scalable way to do things because right. it was so hard to, to keep it going. And then, I may have this company name wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was... Um, Western Electric had the uh, sound on film where you have the soundtrack running on the film. And I'm not going to go into the specifics of how right. it worked, but it's pretty interesting. But the point is, there were every year during the advent of the talkies, sound got better because they figured out new ways of doing things and got, you know, better recordings, better studios that were set up for sound. So all the, all the film studios in New York that had been making silent films couldn't make talkies because you needed a quiet set. And in a city like New York, it's never quiet. And they hadn't built yeah. anything with the idea of keeping sound out. So there were some studios in on the East coast that were ruined by the advent of sound because they, they didn't have the money to build a new soundproof studio and they, they couldn't do it anyway in a place like New York. And yeah. it's the city that never sleeps. There's always noise. There so they were able to do that in California with, you know, wide open land and they could make new construction easier. hmm and have something that was a bit more remote, and it was easier to make talkies. So that's what I wanted to mention about the technical differences there. Um.
1: Usually, what you know, what I've read up is people say, well, around the nineteen forties, you start to see uh, the influence of German Expressionism getting into you know American film. But I, I, I could see it, or as far as I'm concerned, I, you're already seeing tre- elements of it in this film. Uh, and it shows in the camera work of uh, the cinematographer. Uh, there's a couple of cameramen here, uh, Lee Garms, and he won the Academy Award for another film he shot that year called Shanghai, The Shanghai Express, or just Shanghai Express. I can't remember if the, the is. In the title or not. And then there's Mm -hmm. another cameraman or DP uh, mentioned. I don't know if he's handling like second unit type stuff or uh, L.W. O'Connor as Mm -hmm. well. And, and of course, there are other people that were involved in that camera crew. But you can see it was really beautifully shot. I mean, I have to say it it was a prettier film than De Palma's. Mm. And uh, the tracking shots were well executed. uh, And this is beside the point because I'm talking about the camera work, the editing. You can still see editing techniques being evolved uh, or evolving at this point. I don't know that they're really... I mean, they did do some cutaways. There's not a lot of J-cutting or L-cutting where you're you're sort of, you know, one person starts talking before you cut away from one actor's face or vice versa, you know. We should look that
0: up to see when that started to become a thing.
1: Yeah. Once sound came along, a lot of people would argue that like this sort of language of editing sort of got, its growth got stunted for a while because people had a tendency like, oh, so-and-so speaks. Now we cut, we go to the other actress or the actor or actress. And you see that happening in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, But meantime, the camera work was just beautiful. I mean, beautiful Dolly shots, uh, tracking shots, the foreground, background, midground—you get these shots have a great sense of depth, and it's I—it's just really well done. And so it—it's no surprise to me that this this same cinematographer won a, an Academy Award that year. Yeah. You uh, know, I don't know about the other gangster films that came out. You know, I, I really would have to go back and watch something like Little Caesar. This is great camera work, man. Great camera work. Uh, and the other great thing is there weren't that many close-ups. I think it's worth noting that back then, you used you, they told stories. Uh, I mean, people want to co- compare them to how you would stage a play almost, and I can see why, but they mm-hmm. used to tell them in, in wider shots, master shots, um, medium shots and then occasionally the accent moments with a close up and now you know especially with the advent of television we want to tell everything with a close up and if you want to give the audience a little more information occasionally you throw in a wide shot yeah and it's interesting to see how the language of film and, and now television has sort of evolved but mm-hmm. it's, it's a beautifully shot film and uh, I think that's, that's uh, uh, Mr. Garms and Mr. O'Connor need to be mentioned. So,
0: towards the end of the film, there is a scene where the the police officers, the cops, are furious about how the non-informed public is, you know, sentimentalizing Johnny. Uh, due to what they read in the papers, they think his mm-hmm. his criminal exploits are are admirable, and he Johnny them.
1: Tony I, I don't remember Tony this I said George.
0: Johnny I meant Tony. Okay. So during the he, he talks about that in the old days in the westerns they would you know they would meet in the street and you know face each other like men. And now these guys you know they shoot you in the back with a machine gun.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and he talks about that um, there are three kids who were out playing hopscotch and they all got a belly full of lead. And it's interesting that he doesn't say that Tony's crew did that, but that kind of thing from an audience standpoint can only be talked about. And it has to be talked about by someone that the audience doesn't like, because if the audience were to see Tony's crew do that, then he can't really be the, the even the antihero of the film. Like, you know, audiences aren't going to get behind a guy who's mowing down kids. So right. I thought it was interesting that they they mention that, but they don't say that Tony's crew did it, and they certainly don't. You know, they're not going to show that. That leads us to the what I think is like the the message scene um, in the film. Is where this when
1: we're talking with or the newspaper editors speaking yeah, we're again? Yeah, back or? at the at the news
0: okay. uh, at the news office. The big I don't know whoever the owner is. Yeah, is being, I
1: don't know. It's like. Some citizens, I, yeah. There's a yeah. seem to be several different people representing several different groups in society. You know, in the editor's office, right. and they have a complaint.
0: Right. They're they are complaining that the paper is is glamorizing. They're, yeah. they're presenting the gangsters as these glamorous individuals, and that it's all violence, and they don't want their kids reading this because they don't want their kids to emulate it, and just they don't. Yeah. They don't want to read it.
1: Which brings us to the third, I mean, unless we talk about this before, or, or to the other um, element that correlates to what is going on right now. Yeah. Which uh, yeah, is worth noting. Anyway, please continue.
0: Well, the, the, the newspaper man says some interesting things. Some I agree with, most that I don't. But what the newspaper yeah. man never does is accept any responsibility for what's going on. Like, you've mentioned this earlier. You can report the news and you can re- sensationalize the news. And there's right. there two different things. You can lean towards the truth or you can lean towards selling, you know, newspapers or copies or clicks or whatever yeah. you want to call it. So, Are you going the- to be
1: Cronkite or are you going to be William Randolph Hearst? It's kind of... Like-
0: he he puts it all back on society and the government, and he's like, if you take them off the streets, right? Then we won't have anything like this to write about. It's not our part, of, you know. Um, and that's
1: a legitimate point, and I I agree with that. Sure, to an extent, but I I believe that the I agree with that. Not a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. A lot. Um, I agree with his point of view, but I do. I think you're right. You know. Um, I think they have, uh, com- it's a valid complaint. It's a valid concern.
0: But he says mm-hmm. the police can't stop machine guns from going back and forth across the line. They can't enforce laws that don't exist. And at this point, he there you are. Ad- he's advocating gun control. He's saying if there were laws against this, we could maybe stop some of this wholesale slaughter. But there's, mm-hmm. there isn't any. So he says instead of hiding the facts that they should see laws passed that will do some good right okay so he doesn't say though that the newspaper should report things like the three kids that got shot he he, he doesn't say that he could that they could report the news in a way that would make the gangster look bad um, but you know yeah. i see in, in talking about this i see the point like what difference does it make if the if the gangster looks bad if if the ability to commit these crimes is still there and isn't changed, then.
1: Yeah. Uh, what difference Because, does it, because make? it just, it, 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 in one sense that might make matters worse because it's, it preys on people's fears.
0: Sure. And which is what he goes into next. Like he he's, he's advocating for gun control laws. That is, you know, yeah. that could be viewed as a sensible way to curb the violence. But then he mm, says, yeah. um, put guns in the same category as drugs, which we know in hindsight that the war on drugs didn't, didn't quite work out the way people thought it would. He says, put the, put guns in the same category as drugs and white slavery, not slavery, white slavery. It's like this extra. Yeah. Ooh, you know, that's real bad, which uh, is kind of, I mean, how do you say it? It's, uh, it's, it's troubling to, to see that that was the that was the go-getter. You know, that was what was really going to get the audience was this thought of, you know, white, white people being enslaved.
1: Slavery.
0: Then he says put teeth in the Deportation Act. The Deportation Act that I think is they were talking about um, has to do with the Mexican repatriation where a huge number of Mexican or no, these they weren't Mexicans from in the sense that they were U.S. citizens with Mexican heritage, and they were deported back to the United or back to Mexico because they weren't trusted, and so it seems like he's advocating for the expansion of this to I guess other nationalities. One of the um, one of the people says that you know some of these people aren't even citizens. You know, they're people of Italian descent making all other Italians look bad, which is an interesting thing, too. Even today. Um, so in, in 2002, there was a Columbus Day parade in, in, uh, in New York, and the TV show The Sopranos was really popular at the time. So two of the, uh, two of the actors, Edie Falco and I forget who the other one was, were supposed to be part of the guests of honor. And a mm-hmm. lot of Italians did not like that. They're like, we don't want to be known yeah. as the culture that gave you mobsters and TV depictions of mobsters. You know, there's, there's a lot of other things Italians are, are, should be known for. And that's what we want to concentrate sure. on. So it's interesting that, that that sentiment is still there. But this man goes on to saying we should have martial law we should call in the army and the American Legion. So he's going from, we're not going to fight organized crime with freedom. We're going to fight it with fascism.
1: So yeah, you could, there's almost, there could be fascist sentiments. Yeah. And there was a lot going on across the pond at that time that might make sure people, yeah, would be giving reasons. I thought that the editor brought up some great points and, um, nonetheless, you know, uh, but I, maybe that was the point of that scene. Civilians who were representing various groups, I take it, uh, brought them some great points. The editor brought up some great points, and in, the end, I think they both, I would have to say, these characters or people like them would have some things to think about. And, sure, uh,
0: I just uh, on the whole, I'm. I'm disappointed that, and again, it's a movie. I know it's not real life, but the portrayal is I'm I'm disappointed that the newspaper man claims to be this total neutral. We're only reporting what's happening. We don't have a hand in shaping the community. It's all you guys. Like even Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the movie, that little, that, that bit of nonsense they put up at the beginning about, you know, this is an indictment of the government for allowing this to happen. And you know, yeah. First they blame the government.
1: A, lot of, a lot of news writers involved in films and writing films back in those days too. A lot of the greatest in my opinion the greatest some of my favorite filmmakers and directors were actually news people at one point. Hmm. And that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, well you look at John Huston, Orson Welles, Samuel right. Fuller, da, 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 I could the list goes on. Great mm. writers. Um, and so it, you probably have a lot of people who who wound up making movies? Who were news people before that? And you could, I could see why you would have that sort of stance on matters, but it doesn't, it doesn't. They just
0: don't accept any part yeah. in the solution. It's like it's all on you guys. All we're doing is selling papers.
1: Everyone's got a role to play in solving the problem at right. hand. To be sure, right. I would like to read. Since you mentioned it, I'd like to read that uh, sort of disclaimer. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's kind of what it it. wound up being in a way after everything happened with all the haze Code stuff and they had to keep reshooting scenes or re-editing things and finally Howard Hughes says you know what let's do it this way this is the way we're going to end it and we're going to put this In front, and it was so. We they ran the following text over the course of three screens uh, before the film began. This picture is an indictment, quote, This picture is an indictment of gang rule in America and of the callous indifference of the government to this constantly increasing menace to our safety and our liberty. Every incident in this picture is the reproduction of an actual occurrence, and the purpose of this picture is to demand of the government. What are you going to do about it? The government is your government. What are you going to do about it? End quote. And the picture begins.
0: Yeah, shows that shot of 22nd Street.
1: And it's a poignant question. It's, it's it's I think, it's... Uh, well, something. it's
0: interesting that the government is telling them to make the movie less violent. And so they they put that thing on the beginning and say all right we'll make it less violent but this is your fault due to your callous indifference um which i don't think the government was callously indifferent towards what was going on i think there was yeah there were a lot of things going going wrong at the time
1: his illiterate secretary you know Uh, is something else worth mentioning because it's a sort of a comment on the struggle of immigrants to sort of uh, integrate into American society in that day and age. Sure. um, He can't write. He can't. Yeah, exactly.
0: He's got like a weird speech impediment. He can't hear Mm. very well, at least on the telephone. (laughs) You get the impression that he doesn't really understand how a telephone works. Like, where he comes from, there were no phones. Like he picks it up the wrong way at one time. Yeah. He like tries to stop the flow of beer with the earpiece. He drops the earpiece and just shouts into the mouthpiece. I mean, it's it's like, this thing yeah. that he's supposed to know how to use and he doesn't.
1: I do have to say, this is, I really enjoyed this film. And I'm sorry that I'm only now in this discussion mentioning this. It is uncanny. How relevant everything that this all the subject matter that this movie covers is to today and I'm not making a comment about should somebody own a weapon or should somebody not own a weapon I'm saying sure. it's it, it is almost uncanny like I kept watching this film don't know, I, I've watched other movies in the past and it's like, oh, that relates to today. But this, for some reason, this film in particular just uh, mm-hmm. struck me as being incredibly relevant to what's going on right now, right. 85 years later or so, give or take. And I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it, really. It was a good movie. I liked it better than De, De Palma's version. Um.
0: I want to talk about the ending and how everything Mm -hmm. goes south really quickly. So Tony is gone. He comes back. And in the meantime, Cheska and Ronaldo have hooked up and they're living together. Gotten married. Tony doesn't know this. And I guess even, even her mom doesn't know because she just says that she's living with someone or that she's, she has a place, but she, you know, there's a man that stays there. So it's interesting if her mom had explained that they had gotten married or at least knew things might've gone differently. Um, yeah. Because Tony shows up, he sees that it's Ronaldo and he's furious and he, he shoots Ronaldo and Ronaldo gives him this pained not in, the fact that he's in physical pain, although he is, but at pain and that you disappoint me, Tony.
1: Yeah. And almost like you didn't know, you don't know everything.
0: Right. Clearly, you don't understand. You know? um, yeah. And, you know, there's the, there is a close up there where uh, he flips the, his coin as he's getting shot. Yeah. And then, you know, Cheska is saying, what have you done? We got married. Um, we were going to surprise you. And that is where Tony, Kind of falls apart and quits caring because he shot his best friend because he thought he was shacking up with his sister who he's obviously very protective yeah. of and maybe has some some feelings that need to get worked out in therapy.
1: Yeah, unexplored, <laughs> Unex- yeah. unexplored, and unexplained feelings.
0: But it seemed like he, he's so stricken with what he's done, like it's almost like he's saying. Had I known they were, it was a legit marriage and this wasn't, you know, he was treating my sister honorably. I wouldn't have done that, but it's too late because he's impulsive and he does what he wants and he leaves. Um, The cops are on his trail because, you know, Cheska has turned him in. She's after him with a gun. You know, Angelo gets shot as they're trying to get into his, uh, you know, hideout or his house with the steel shutters. And Angelo does that. His one of his last acts is they get inside and he's dying because he's been shot. But he goes back and he he um, blocks the door and yeah. falls over. I think he says one more time that he didn't get the name or something. Yeah,
1: he's like trying. That. That's like uh, it was a beautiful again a beautiful use of character motif. The whole thing when uh, when Ronaldo is dying, he he misses the coin. Right? Isn't that how that? right the he misses it falls the from his hand uh, the, the you know angelo tries to take the call from poppy i think it is one last time and he's i finally got the name this time boss and uh, it just was kind of a you know if someone did that today it would be probably we think oh god how sappy but it was they handled it beautifully i thought it's kind of yeah. um the way they did things back then it was, it was um, i i liked that quite a bit.
0: Cheska shows up. She's got the gun. She's furious. Mm-hmm. But once she sees that Tony is in danger, you 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 see kind of a level of love for Tony that Tony has had for her, like she immediately goes from wanting to kill him to I've got to protect him or if I can't protect him, if I can't help him get away, You know, because they kind of try and go out that back door, and the cops are there, and they shoot things up. They're like, "She's like, I'm going to make this last stand with him," and they say to each other, "I'm just like you." And she gets shot, and for that brief moment when when Tony feels like his sister doesn't hate him anymore, yeah, there's like a few minutes in there where he's like, "Yeah, I'm probably going to die or go to jail," but my, you know, the one person in the in life that I that I love is actually here and, and showing that she cares about me, so yeah, I'm okay. But once she gets shot, he he loses it, and it's it's really mm-hmm. it's well it's well done acting. Even is that how you say it? Yeah. It's good and, acting. You know, it's good I
1: acting. Do. I agree. And, and, and I guess I felt like in one, you know, I don't know. I don't have to go into. I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze the character. On one <laughs> level, though, I do think like. A, he had actually a very pure love for his sister. I mean, I think he had, may have had some mixed up feelings, and some or there were in yes. implications that he had other mixed up feelings going on there, or he didn't really understand the feelings that he actually had for his sister. Yeah. Maybe he didn't understand the purity of his own feelings for his sister. I don't, but it's it's too bad when Robert he knew he was remake. losing her. Yeah, he he lost it, and she yeah. didn't like that at all. Actually, it was kind of yeah. She
0: well, she says. He says to her, You can't leave me, I'll be all alone. You know, he yeah. talks about Angelo's gone and, and Ronaldo mm-hmm. is gone, and if you die, I'll be all alone, and I can't be all mm-hmm. alone. And he's 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 the kid now. He's he's it's the other side of being a kid, that idea of I need those around me to comfort me, you know. I want to do what I want all the time except for when I need comfort. I want
1: Yeah. And it she's the one who needed I mean and she was asking him for comfort in her dying moment. Right. And, and she says this than, line that...
0: I, yeah, go yeah. ahead. You go ahead.
1: Well, and then rather than doing that for her, uh, he he caves in, like you said.
0: Yeah. And she says to him at that point when she's not getting the comfort from him that she needs, she mm-hmm. says, which to me was like the the biggest line of the ending is she says, Tony, I'm all hollow inside. Like she's literally been shot and probably yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a physical and a, and a emotional emptiness. And that scene was, was amazing. And I, yeah. And then when Tony's going downstairs, he's and he's pleading with the cops. He's like, you know, don't kill me. I don't have a gun. And he's just saying, you know, all these yeah. things like my, my, my steel shutters didn't work. You know, it's like, you know, don't you understand? It wasn't supposed to happen like this. Yeah and then he just tries to run away and he gets shot and he falls down and he he his death is exactly as the cop towards the beginning predicted. He says you'll fall down, you'll be dead in the gutter or dead in the alley yeah. where the horses go and that's where you belong. And that's where he ends up, you know, in the in the yeah. film that in the ending that got put in theaters.
1: Something about his sister, some other things she said, some other of her last words um she mentioned to him that she didn't. She kept asking him, you know, hold me, you know, just, just for a little while. And he couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. And she said, you know what? I don't want to be around. I, this is not verbatim, but I basically told him, I don't want to be around you anymore because you're afraid. Right. And it's pretty much all the guy was from there on out. And it's funny. This we because we've been talking so long. We were talking early about it, how the guy showed no fear. Right, the point of borderline stupidity. He showed no fear.
0: <laughs> exactly. But
1: here at the end, yeah, and then, and then maybe that is a significant character arc, because here at the end, when he's finally lost all the people that's important to his life, and he's never going to see his mother again. Right. Right. Suddenly yeah, that's, he's afraid.
0: That's yeah.
1: Yeah. Now that he knows he's gonna he's gonna be all alone. Now he's afraid, and his own sister doesn't want to hang hang around and like the last thing she does, I think is call out for Ronaldo. Right. Right. She, That's the last
0: thing she does. That's an excellent point. Cause Ronaldo <laughs> was, Ronaldo was brave to the end. He knew that it was probably not go well and that there could be some, yeah some rough stuff if, when Tony found out, but he did it anyway. And he, but man, what, what a, what a film.
1: Yeah. It was a great movie and a very, sort of rapid fall for for that character. Yeah. Um, once
0: uh That's you mentioned something about the that in many ways his love for his sister was pure and I see that w- looking back at you know once he finds out that they were married and he killed his sister's husband.
1: I thought there was some remorse there.
0: Yeah. There absolutely was remorse there because I it makes me think Maybe he didn't actually have incestuous feelings for his sister. Maybe he thought in this world she's mm. just going to end up with some guy who's going to use her and treat her badly, and I can't stand yeah. that. But Ronaldo married her. You know, that's that's legit. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. And for him to feel like, oh, the actual thing that I hoped would happen actually happened and I killed him.
1: And so, yeah everything that I really wanted the maybe and it's it's hard to say like in one sense like a, you know what he's just a typical overprotective big brother he's yeah. protective of his sister yeah or you know on the other hand maybe you know maybe he's got some he's got some other stuff going on down there
0: you can certainly make the argument that it's just straight up incestuous feelings and yeah. who knows what's going on in his head and it's
1: I, but I don't, I don't know how conclusive it is and, and but in and, in and, the upshot is, is It's not always All that easy to, to sort out Sure You know Maybe it's both <laughs> yeah. So But maybe that's Maybe I don't know Maybe that was something That's sort of redeeming That happened I mean Maybe he had some Confused feelings at, at, You know To an extent Earlier mm-hmm. on In the story and But maybe when he, Even though he Screwed everything up At the end He realized He had Ruined A good thing and yeah, I felt like I saw at least a little bit of remorse there before he, everything went completely south.
0: Yeah. I think that it's, um, you know, we said this about the killing. I think it's a sign of a good film when these scenes give you so much to talk about. There's so much there. And that's that's just good art.
1: Thanks for listening to The Sit-Down. Next time we'll discuss Brian De Palma's 1983 remake of Scarface starring Al Pacino. Could we have witnessed filmic displacement in his rendition of this epic tragedy? A lot of people might say so. You can find more information about this podcast at thesitdownpodcast.com and on Twitter at The SitDown Pod. Also look for us on iTunes and Google Play. Oh, and keep this under your hat until the next time we see each other at the sit-down.